Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden. This is episode number six. Yes, Graves and Stones May Hide My Bones, we've decided to call it. <laughs> this was my title, I came up with this one, uh, so blame me. Yeah, in general, if the title is a pun, it is always Chris that's come up with it. Yeah, that's probably the case. Uh, but from puns, we should probably head from puns to the Swedish phrase of the week. And this time we have Lega Lurk Polaxen. Translated to English, it literally means to put onion on the salmon. It describes an act of making something that was already bad even worse. So maybe something topical right now might be as if isolation because of COVID wasn't bad, now my internet is down. My internet provider is really lega lök på laxen. That hasn't happened to us so far, so we're all safe. No one has put any onions on our salmon. I think the origin of it might just be that it tastes bad to put onion on salmon. Putting onion on salmon means that you worsen the taste of it. I read an article by Mikael Reuter, a Finno-Swedish linguist, who traces the root of lega lök på laxen all the way back to the 16th century. So Swedish speakers have been expressing their displeasure this way for a long time. And interestingly, so do the Danes, because the same expression exists in Danish. Anyway, last time around we looked at Bronze Age Sweden. We looked at bronze, that was the thing during the Bronze Age, they traded bronze. We looked at this partly through studying the Dover boat from England and the Uluburun shipwreck off of Turkey. We saw how these boats took their place in the amazing network that helped the bronze get to Sweden and helped the Bronze Age to flourish. And we saw how Sweden and southern Scandinavia got in the act by trading its lovely amber for bronze, copper and tin. The Swedes also got some new cultural habits like shaving, which came from Greece, and a lot of other societal changes, including the introduction of small villages, family clusters, and even an outbreak of violence. Yes, we should not forget the violence. We had our first murder in the last episode as well, Gran Hamas Mannen, which we solved, but didn't solve, if that makes sense. Yeah, we had CSI Bronze Age Sweden look at that case. Yeah, that might be something that returns as we go through history. I don't know. Yeah, CSI Viking Age or something like that. CSI whichever age we're in. Although we should probably change the name to something like Flatpak Investigates or something that means we don't get sued. <laughs> yeah, we might get an angry letter from lawyers in America otherwise. We also touched on the Greek and European civilizations that helped Sweden to grow last time, and how their societies were really quite different to Sweden at this time, especially the levels of the Greek civilizations, which had cities of thousands and thousands of people, considering Sweden had absolutely nothing like that. It was a bit of a change. Yeah, definitely. But we're now going to look at the same period again, uh, so roughly 1800 BCE to 500 BCE. So uh, it's time to elaborate a bit more. And one thing we touched on last time but should emphasise a little bit more this time was the change of the climate. Yes, at the start of the Bronze Age, and even during the Stone Age we've covered, the climate was comparable to that of present-day central Germany and northern France, so a bit warmer than present-day Sweden. That helped with population growth, as they weren't starving or freezing to death. 
This warmth helped provide good opportunities for farming. For example, there were even grapes grown in Scandinavia at this time, which there isn't today. There's no Swedish wine, really, although my aunt and uncle do grow grapes in their garden in southern Sweden. They have an incredibly sunny spot that lets them grow literally a grape. So that's not really enough for wine, is it? No, not really, but that's at least something. But then when we reach the end of the Bronze Age, a minor change in climate happened around 850 to 760 BCE. This brought a wetter and colder climate. And then a more radical climate change began a bit later on at the end of this episode in this period around 650 BCE, which brought us much closer to what we have in modern day Sweden. Yeah, that brought us the cold weather that we have today. (laughs) Yeah. Which is good if you like the snow. And I guess that had to happen at some point. But what are we going to focus on this week? Well, as the title suggests, Graves and Stones. I know we've spoken a lot about Stone Age graves, so this won't be a hugely long episode, uh, he says at the start. Uh, But this is something we should really talk about. Graves are one of the best links we have to this period in our past. And this is before we have any written records or anything like that. So in a way, what the dead left behind in their tombs and chambers are probably the easiest things to look at to see what society was like at the time. One of the best symbols of the period are the grave mounds, and thankfully there are a lot of them. Literally thousands of these were made in southern and central Sweden, Denmark and southern Norway between 1800 and 1100 BCE, so the start and middle part of this period. As always, they varied in size, they didn't do flat pack graves deliveries at the time, but they averaged 20 meters in diameter and 3 meters in height, so there's a big range uh, in there as well. They began as graves for one person, but then were often reused for hundreds of years, so like the Stone Age tombs, there could be dozens or even hundreds of people laid to rest in the same place. Hopefully they did a bit of tidying up before adding a new person though. One thing these graves were was complex, and they required considerable amount of materials to make. They are the work of a great many people building on the techniques used before. Typically, the remains of the dead and any personal goods that were buried with them were placed in the middle. They were usually put down on a specially built bed of stones and in a wood or stone coffin. Hmm, nice. A bed of stones. Perhaps not as comfortable as our modern beds. I'm going to guess no, but um, after they were put down on these stony beds, a ring of stones was then frequently laid around the centre. That sounds nice. Yeah, and then comes the fun part when the mound was built. They would use stone, timber and turf to build up the giant piles of earth. Larger ones have been estimated at using around 3,200 cubic metres of turf, which would have been taken from around 17 acres of land. Again, this is really huge numbers, and it's amazing how much effort was put into these things. It isn't just a quick burial organised in a few days. They didn't just say, hey, let's go make a 20 metre wide grave out of all this turf. It just takes so much time and effort to build. Yeah, massive effort. And because of the amount of effort involved, it has been suggested that the mounds and the graves may reflect centres of power 
of local chieftain families as they developed in clusters and some were particularly ornate. Like most of our evidence that we looked at so far in the podcast, the counties of Skåne and Halland in southern Sweden have the most examples of it. That's not because they're the best, well they are, but because they're in the south, which had more people. But stone graves are most definitely prominent in neighbouring areas and all the way up to the upland north of Stockholm. And we mustn't forget the amazing islands of Öland and Gotland. They have a lot of these too. Absolutely. And back on the mainland, one of the best is at Haga near Uppsala. This one is 50 metres in diameter, 9 metres high and had 4 people buried inside. These were probably a chieftain and 3 companions. And one of them was a woman, so perhaps a wife, a daughter or a loved one. Interestingly, the practice of building these huge monumental graves started to stop around the middle of our period. Cremation and simpler, less labour-intensive graves became more common then. An important development is the fact that about the same time as this change, some dead were placed in graves marked by ship-shaped stone outlines. That's a hard phrase to say. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, if you think of Stonehenge but not as ornate, just regular stones were placed in an oblong, circular shape that looks a bit like a ship or a canoe from above. These are very cool, though. There are over 350 of these on Gotland alone. So if you end up on Gotland for some reason, which you should do, as it's a lovely place, if you just go for a walk, you'll almost certainly bump into one. The graves themselves are great evidence for this period, as up until cremation became a thing, the tannin of the oak coffins in some graves even preserved the clothes of the dead. You can find some very well-preserved clues to the past. The oldest woolen textiles still around from Scandinavia have been found from Bronze Age graves, where the coffins themselves have helped preserve the grave goods. That is a very cool side effect. And talking of cool graves, perhaps the coolest one is called the King's Grave, and it's only about an hour away from where you grew up or so. Yeah, it's in a village called Skivik on the south coast of Sweden, but I've actually never been there, which I'm ashamed to say. I think my year in school was the only year that didn't go on a class field trip there, but I've been to the village itself. It's famous for cider, right? Correct, or apple juice in general. Yeah, well, uh, we can go there for that and then also see the grave or the other way around. Yeah. (laughs) And we'll tell you why you should go and see it if you're in the area, because the King's Grave is quite a grand name, and for good reason. It's a pretty grand grave. It's known for its elaborate burial chamber and a lot of crazy artwork inside that hints at religious connotations. The tomb and everything around it gives an insight into just how complex a society Sweden must have developed to in order to make such a thing possible, and it really showcases the technological sophistication of Bronze Age Scandinavia. Unfortunately, like a lot of these places, it had already been robbed when it was rediscovered in the 1700s, and archaeologists only started properly having a look at it in the 1930s. The archaeologists who excavated it in the 1930s did try to reconstruct it using the material and knowledge they had of the period then, 
The whole area had been used as a quarry for centuries, so it perhaps isn't surprising that someone got there first. In fact, according to the brochure about the king's grave given by the museum on the site, those who found the actual grave chamber in 1748 were charged for looting it, but then released due to a lack of evidence. Yeah, maybe if they'd gone round to their house and spotted loads of Bronze Age statues and found a skeleton in the corner, they would have said, oh no, don't worry, that's just the king, uh, he's resting. Olaf, it's the 1750s, why have you got all this Bronze Age stuff on your farm? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> but yeah, I trust who was ever investigating this in the 1750s. It's like CSI 1750s Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> the entire complex is circular, about 75 meters in diameter, which is big and actually the largest in Sweden. There are two chambers, a main chamber and a smaller one called the Princess Chamber. Inside the main one, there are 10 stones which mark the edge of the grave area. These stones are about a meter high and a meter wide. And these stones have a lot of pictures on them, markings and carvings, depicting cloaked figures, horses, carts and dancers and musicians. And it's something you looked into quite a bit, didn't you, <laughs> Yeah, maybe because I'm ashamed that I haven't actually been there, I try and uh, make up for it. Anyway, about the carvings on the stones in the king's grave in particular, there are actually only paintings on eight out of ten of them, marking the edge. Originally, there was an eleventh stone, but again, someone probably nicked it in the 1790s. Probably the sons or grandsons of those original farmers that maybe did or didn't loot it. Yeah, but who in the late 1700s is just nicking stuff from Bronze Age graves and taking a giant stone? Yeah, and they only wanted one too, which is a bit weird. Yeah, the oldest find in the grave are actually from a Mesolithic settlement, so from around six to 7,000 years earlier. They include a Mesolithic tomb with a stone axe and flint leaf. Archaeologists have also found stone tools and weapons, and importantly, a small human bone that dates from around 5000 to 4500 BCE. That leads on to the Bronze Age period, where the stone coffin itself is from, around 1400 BCE, and it contains fragments from probably six different individuals, five of whom were teenagers when they died. That's a bit weird. Yeah, but it goes to show that the king's grave isn't just one find from one period, even if it's most famous as a Bronze Age site. It's actually several finds from different periods, not just those inside the grave, but also outside, where even more remains have been found, indicating that this was used as a burial site throughout the Stone, Iron and Viking Ages, meaning a period of over 7,000 years. If you then take into account the nearby hill called Ingakjosen, there are further 130 tombs found, so this area is one of the richest Bronze Age burial sites in Scandinavia. <laughs> That's a lot in just one area, and I guess you haven't been to that hill either. Nope! Oh well. Um, if, unlike Orsa, you do want to visit the King's Grave, it's open to the public every summer and it's featured in a load of Swedish history documentaries, um, some of which I think are on YouTube because we watched a bit of them, but again, in Swedish, unfortunately. 
Now, we say this so often it becomes a bit of a cliche, but one of the key things to remember is that this grave wouldn't be typical of the day-to-day -day person back in the Bronze Age, or of any age really, it's certainly not typical of people today. We mentioned briefly last week that most of the tools and day-to-day -day work would still have to be done by stone tools, and average families just wouldn't have the time to go and make one of these gigantic tombs. It was a real team effort needed to make them. Absolutely. This also reflected in Bronze Age finds, where a lot don't contain any bronze at all. I'll quote an article from someone who is quickly becoming everyone's favourite, Professor Yuan Ling, who says... It is noteworthy that excavation of Bronze Age graves in Biwusland have uncovered just a few cases of graves equipped with bronze items, gold or elaborate stone. The pattern is even clearer in the Gothenburg area, where about 20 cairns and 20 stone settings have been investigated and dated to the Bronze Age. Only about 10% of these burials had prestige goods such as bronze items or gold. So we can see that that bronze and gold was hand-picked and used by those elite artisan workers and then held onto by the chieftains, kings, family members, and certainly not your everyday Swede. Which is a shame, as they were certainly nice to look at, but uh, I guess the chieftains didn't want to share that nice stuff. Now, let's move on to our second topic for today. The huge collection of painted stones and inscriptions found all over Sweden and Scandinavia from this time. These are sometimes known as petroglyphs, but we might just call them rock paintings or carvings for simplicity. These are probably the most studied aspect of the Bronze Age in Sweden. There are countless academic articles written every year on this stuff, uh, which was good for us writing this episode. And perhaps for good reason, Europe's largest concentration of prehistoric rock art is to be found in Sweden, in Buuslen on the west coast to be precise, where about 1,500 sites have been recorded. Today, most of the rock art is located around 10 kilometers inland due to various geographical and geological changes over the millennia, but it would have been closer to the coast when they were made. And the first thing to note about these carvings is that the most common image is of a ship, which makes sense with them being by the coast, right? Now, Bohuslan is really hitting it out of the park right now, as it's known to contain some 10,000 ship images spread over these 1,500 sites. So that's about seven and a half each. <laughs> it's like they went, Olaf, what shall we draw today? Um, ship? Really? We drew four ships last week. Yes, but we've got to have more ships. <laughs> And back down in Skorna, there seems to be a lot of axes there too, and hundreds of them have been depicted there. In general, the rock art of the Bronze Age is different from the Mesolithic picture stones, because the Mesolithic carvers only used to depict animals, and they didn't graduate to school and uh, draw stick men or boats. By the time we got to the Bronze Age, the images the carvers seemed to like most were ships, circles and wheels, men with weapons, men with large penises, plows, footprints and occasionally women if they were lucky enough to be included. The purpose and reasons behind these images are much debated, hence all of the scholarly articles. They may be secular images of everyday life, farming, hunting and maritime trade, 
or they might be sacred, as they include classic religious motifs such as the sun, ships, and what might have been gods of the hunt or fertility. There's much evidence which has led to many people to argue that they were part of complex religious beliefs. The burial practices, especially grave goods for the afterlife, so we're talking about weapons, clothes, and even food and drink, all indicate a possible belief in the afterlife. Other offerings include pitcher stones, bronze sun wheels, these amazing wheels made out of bronze, and small metal statues of men and women at places that appear to be places of worship, and they all indicate this too. Some of you might be asking how the rock art was actually made or what it looked like. Uh, we encourage you to Google it whilst you're listening, but we'll describe it for you now if you're driving or doing something else. The rock art was made from chiseling out the rock, using a harder rock to bash out the shapes on the softer rock. Bash, 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 bash. Yes, exactly. Just like that. <laughs> and so you'd carve out the shape by bashing the rock with a harder rock and maybe just a circle at first. And it would take literally hours to bash out a shape that was deep enough for you to then mix together an ochre type material, which was then put into these shapes to make them shine red. It was so successful that the red lines and shapes, some of them are still around today. A lot were also made using a white material to make the lines in the rock show up a bright white colour. So we've got this graffiti style or cave art which you bash out with the harder rock and then fill it in with paint. Great, so now we know how to make rock art, which make it sound a bit like this is a Blue Peter episode. And here's one I made earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Reference check. Blue Peter is a children's TV program here in the UK where kids learn about arts and crafts and all sorts of things. But yes, now we've learned how to make rock art, perhaps a sensible way to split this section going forward is splitting the carvings and painted stones into sections about boats and sections about non-boat imagery. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as there's a lot of boats. Uh, so we just start with them? <laughs> yeah, there are many boats, or should we say ships, in Swedish rock paintings, especially along the west coast. As, for example, the rock paintings in Tornum, which is a 45-kilometer square area in the county of Bohuslän, where a great number of rock paintings have been found. In fact, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. There might be a simple reason why boats are such popular features in Scandinavian rock art. It's close to the sea, as in Scandinavia is and Bohuslän is. Most of the sites where rock paintings are found are either on the coast or near a lake or some other waterway. We saw in the last episode how seafaring and trade was hugely important to life in Sweden, so it's not surprising at all that boats played such a big part in people's artistic lives too. But it can sometimes be difficult to interpret what the boats mean in the rock paintings, since they appear in many different settings, sometimes with people jumping off them or getting in them or fighting next to them. So were they the direct focus of the painting or were they more in the background? Similarly, boats appear in both religious and secular motifs, and there are so many different varieties of boats. Small ones, big ones, long ones, tall ones, short ones, all with different decorations and styles which have been catalogued and put in a huge classification book. But even though there's so much of it, this of course has not stopped people from coming up with different ways of interpreting them. One interpretation I particularly like is by Christian Christensen, who talks about boats and their relationship to chieftains or the rich people in society, which talks about an area called Limfjorden in Norway. And he says... 
Long maritime voyages between Limfjorden and Bohuslän were part of the normal activities of a chief, and we consequently get some idea of the significance of the rock carvings. The rock was carved at the onset of a long voyage or on reaching the destination. On returning home with new foreign goods, they were probably carved on the rocks too. The rocks displayed the chief's achievements, but these were also the place where rituals were carried out to ensure safe and successful voyages. So this is a bit like a captain's log combined with bragging rights for the chief, mixed with some religious stuff. Uh, seems plausible to me. Captain's log, 800 BCE. I've just reached Buhuslen and encountered some strange Bronze Age people, so I'm sending an away team to find out more and bring me back some bronze. Yeah, was all that carved into a rock? Yeah, I, I think it was in a very elaborate Star Trek reference. But according to Christian Christensen, the boats were references to this everyday life and potential bragging rights for the local chieftains and evidence of successful trips abroad and things like that. I am going to head on to something that isn't boat related and touch on something else that there is a lot of in Swedish rock paintings from the time, and that is penises. Or phallic imagery, as it's known in the academic literature. Indeed, but I prefer to just say penises. Call a spade a spade, so to say. I've read Lynn Beaven's chapter on hypermasculinity and the construction of gender in the 2015 book Picturing the Bronze Age. If you're interested in this, she's done a lot of work on gender imagery in rock paintings. The main things I took away from this was how common sex scenes are in Swedish rock painting so long before the whole concept of Swedish sin and how we became famous for all the nude scenes in our films. Apparently, our rock paintings were erotic as well. The erect penis is a frequent symbol in rock paintings. They are seen in all kinds of settings and seem to signify masculinity in everything from warfare to hunting, plowing or even rituals. In fact, when talking about boats like we did just now, when they are depicted in warrior settings, they often include these erect penises. Attached to a person, I hope. Yeah, not, not just free-floating. They're attached to the stick men in the paintings. There are theories that suggest that the use of the penis was to symbolize masculinity in general. For example, in scenes that depict hostage takings, the capturer has a large erect penis, the captured doesn't. And perhaps this is indicative of a status between the two. Yeah, that's a bit bizarre. And so when you're looking at all these paintings, it can be quite funny and weird with all these rock paintings of essentially stick figures that look like they have a third leg. And there's a female equivalent too, rock paintings where the person has a little circle or cup between their legs. And then there are non-gendered ones, so to speak, where they're essentially just stick figures without anything to differentiate them. We should also mention that the penis isn't the only exaggerated attribute on these rock paintings. It was also common, for example, to paint the figures with very large calf muscles. They did a lot of time in the gym. That Every day was leg day for these Bronze Age stick figures. <laughs> I'm sure they loved it. And uh, now to move on to a different topic. There are several other common motifs found in rock art. Uh, it's not just boats and penises, unfortunately uh. for us. <laughs> 
There are lots of actual violence-related scenes, which you mentioned before in the terms of hostages and other forms of violence, also. In terms of the humans depicted in the rock art, many are warriors armed with weapons and armor. They're actually that detailed. Some hold axes, bows, arrows, spears, and shields, but the most common is definitely a sword. Archaeologist Mats Malmer has counted that 40% of the human figures in Buhuslang carry swords, so there's a real army of swordsmen they took the time to make. And there's even a cooler scene that Andreas Torgeld has discovered. On a surface of rock 16 by 5 meters inside in a private garden, we discovered a scene with a human figure thrusting a spear with both hands into the chest of an antagonist. Uh, so that's very cool. And that murder, stabby spear scene is apparently unique for Northern Europe. Oh, wow. Go Sweden. Yeah. Andreas goes on to talk about how skeletal trauma shows that a common cause of death among those being killed during the Bronze Age in Northern Europe was from being struck by a spear. The victims have been found in ordinary graves as well as in mass graves, in which entire families appear to have been murdered. Oh, grim. Yeah, that is pretty grim, but also evidence that the stones weren't just something of a religious context, but also a depiction of everyday life, just like the chieftains sailing around. It was a gloat or a boast made by those who did the deed. However, like most things, it's important to not get too excited. It can be possible to count long sticks or random shapes as swords and just boost the numbers. Just because they're holding something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a sword. What the researchers discuss when they look at these paintings is that it tends to help with classification if these swords have a pommel or a guard on them, rather than just being a long stick. Uh, if it doesn't have that extra bit on it, the, the pommel, it might just be a stick. As Freud might say... Sometimes a stick is just a stick. We've talked about trade and interconnectedness during this period in the last episode, and it's interesting to see how rock paintings found in Sweden sometimes share similarities with those found elsewhere in Europe, for example in northern Italy, even if some of the Swedish finds are more unique, like the spear death scene. There's still a level of connectedness between this art. Yes, and when you combine the boats with some of the nearby non-boats images, you can start to create a realistic depiction of what was happening at the time. Going back to Christian Christensen, he said that there were two chieftains from the southeast coast of Sweden who established relationships with chiefs in Central Europe. This was to be the beginning of a widespread exchange of goods and knowledge that make this area a sort of departure point for these longer voyages. We can see that in the carvings where these axes the two chiefs were carrying were the same type of axe that came from Austria and Hungary, showing how their trips must have brought them into contact with other people who had these axes or made them. So he said, hey, they've got cool axes, we want some of them too and we want to draw them. Yeah, they would need to have at least seen them to then draw them. So this is connecting the boats to the axes to the trade. Exactly, and this is just one example of this. One written example which neatly sums up the experience and use of ships in trade is from that oral epic poem tradition, and that's of course the Odyssey, and uh, attributed to Homer set in the Bronze Age of sea voyages. Menelaus tells Telemachus in Book 4 that When it comes to men, I feel that few or none can rival me in wealth, for it took me seven years and great hardship to amass this fortune and bring it home in my ships. My travels took me to Cyprus, to Phoenicia, and to Egypt, Ethiopians, Sidonians, and Brayans. I visited them all, and I saw Libya too. Uh, that was, yeah, book 4, 75 to 85. 
So this is really more of the stuff that we talked about last week. The trade and the rock art is just evidence of this occurring in the Swedish context, uh, although I'm pretty sure Menelaus didn't bother coming up to Sweden or mention him in his little speech. That's a bit sad. Indeed. But before we end, there are two final points to perhaps mention about the rock paintings. There are also indications that some sites of Bronze Age rock painting might have been used again in the early Iron Age, but less so in Sweden compared to elsewhere in Europe, though. Sometimes they were used later in the Bronze Age, too. One article mentioned how there was a man with an axe, but later on they added a man with a spear stabbing him in the back later on. So they know and can tell that it was carved at a later date than the original man. So uh, that's really interesting. The other important thing to remember when talking about rock paintings and how to interpret them is that we have no Rosetta Stone. We've not got a key for what they mean or how to read them like we do with the Egyptian hieroglyphs. Yeah, there's no user's guide to these rock paintings. No, there's no guide to that part of the carving. I'm not discrediting the scholarly articles on the topic, on the contrary, but we are interpreting these paintings in the end without a fact sheet to correct us. But by adding all these bits and pieces together, looking at the art and the archaeology and everything else, it does give you this picture that does seem to make at least a bit of sense. And regardless, the rock paintings are fascinating remnants of this period that's really far back in our history. It's so great to have a tangible connection to people who lived thousands of years ago and what they did. But with that, it's perhaps time to wrap up this week's episode. We have reached the end of the Bronze Age, and next time we will be moving into the Iron Age. Yeah, bye-bye, Bronze Age. See you never. Well, what's cooler, Bronze Age or Iron Age? Well, I'm going to disappoint you because the reading I've done so far makes the Iron Age seem a lot less interesting, at least uh, until you get to the Vikings, because uh, there doesn't seem to be too much out there on Sweden specifically. So maybe the Bronze Age is going to be more fun overall. We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, we need to look into why there are less traces from Iron Age Sweden compared to the Bronze Age that came before it. It's a bit of a mystery. Now we're going to need to put the King's Grave on our list of places to see once we're back in Sweden after talking about all these graves. It's been really fun and we've been talking about all these boats and the rock art and everything else to add to this picture of the Bronze Age trade networks and everything that was going on on that side. This added to all the great ideas and bronze artefacts that were in Sweden and that are still around us today. Yeah, and so with that... Until next time, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, or leave us a review wherever you listen to us or email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com and check out our website aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com and uh, see what we have there. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you and love to get a review from you. But until next time, stay safe and take care. Yes, see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, y'all.